Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Agraf, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we'd like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, The Nature Conservancy, Rabobank, Thought for Food, and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the seventh episode of Food Systems. We're joined today by Lawrence Haddad, the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. Before that, he was the Director of the Institute of Development Studies. And together with David Nabarro, he won the 2018 World Food Prize for his work on child and maternal nutrition. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Robert. Pleasure to be here. Today we want to talk to you about a new system that you've developed, the Food Systems Dashboard, which you've developed together with the Global Alliance on Nutrition, as well as Jessica Fanzo and her team at Johns Hopkins University. I would urge everybody who's listening to give it a try. It's it's an online tool to create better food policy. It's a huge visualized data set, huge amount of countries, about 170 indicators, and it seems to identify strengths, weaknesses in the food system and ultimately help create better policy. I wanted to start with why you wrote this. You recently co-wrote a piece with Agnes Kalibata, the special envoy for the UN Food System Summit, where you claim that the world's data on food systems was ramshackle even before COVID broke out. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, the, the, the data that we all rely on to, to make policy, uh, you know, evidence-based and data-driven is you've kind of got to go to 30 or 40 different places. Uh, and unless you're a, a real data expert, uh, you won't know where to look and you, you won't know how to put those pieces together and you won't know which, which is good quality and which isn't good quality. So we just, you know, searched all the different websites we could find, uh, quality screen the data, put them together in a in a logical format that says, here's your food system, here's the production stuff, here's the food environment where you come face to face with the food you're going to buy, here's the processing stuff, here's the uh, supply chain, here's the uh, retail outlets, here are the diets, here are the outcomes of the diets, and here are some of the drivers of the system, you know, urbanization, uh, population, trade, uh, those kinds of things. And you put it all in one place and uh, it's it's a beginning. You know, it's a start. For It saves you some time. It, it gives you a sense of... Um, it gives you a sense of possibilities uh, to describe your, your food system. Of course, the next, the next phase is to say, okay, those 170 indicators characterize my food system. Which parts of my food system are weak? which parts are really strong. And then the third part is, well, what do I do about the parts that are weak? So we're trying to take users on that journey from describe, diagnose, to decide what to do. I wonder now that you've put together, this is obviously a massive data set that's been put together. Now that, that you have a good overview, are there specific gaps in the data that you feel still need to be addressed that you don't feel that you have enough information on? Yeah, there are, there are lots of gaps. Um, the 
I would say the biggest sort of uh, content gap is we don't know enough about, there aren't enough data sets publicly available, and most of the data we've pulled together is publicly available data. Um, but there aren't enough data sets on why people buy the foods they do, why they access the foods they do. We, you know, con uh, economists, and I'm an economist, we talk a lot about um, what people purchase, and we sort of assume that price is the main driver. And of course, price is a key driver for many people. We found out last last month from the UN's um, State of Food, Food and Security report that 3 billion people can't afford a healthy diet. Uh, but there are also other drivers, and economists tend to sort of lump all these other drivers and hold them constant. But but there are things like convenience, taste, um, you know, aspiration, uh, a whole range of things that are emotionally driven, um, that are sort of non-rational in a, in a sense, at least from an economic perspective, that drive uh, what people do. And there's a whole industry around this called consumer insights, but, but most of it happens within companies. And so the data that's available uh, tends not to be uh, publicly available, and it tends not to be comparable across countries either, because different companies have different ways of doing it in different geographies. So that's that's the main sort of substantive gap. We also have gaps at the sub-national level. You know, India has a food system. Well, that's not very sensible because India, every, every state in India has its own food system and actually probably has more than one food system. And then there's also a gap in terms of real-time data. We don't have any data that really changes much other than from year to year. Maybe some, some indicators change one, uh, twice a year. But what we really would like to get more of is, is this real-time data. You know, economics, again, I'm an economist. Economics data changes on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. But the kind of data we have in, available to tell us about food changes very slowly. Um, I, wonder, I wanted to pick up on this because a number of our previous guests on the podcast when asked about their recommendations for the food system have said something like that we should trust consumers to make the right decision. But I always wonder, um, and you mentioned this as well, how much agency does a, does a consumer really have when making food decisions? How rational is the you know, as you said, it's it's an economics. They're also always meant to be rational, price driven. How much agency does the average consumer have in a food system? Well, I, you know, I think they have some agency. Obviously, um, do they have complete agency? No. It's it's we need to the the food system, and by that I mean governments as well as businesses need to make it easier for consumers to buy healthier food. Um, sometimes price is excluding them from this. Sometimes the barrage of advertising is excluding them from this. Sometimes physical availability is excluding them from this. On, on the high street in a neighborhood of London where I grew up, it was just junk food uh, on the high street. You know, there was no, there were no fresh foods being sold. So it's about availability, it's about price, and it's about, it's about desirability. You know, how, 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 do we, how do we create a desirability for healthy food and, and actually restrict the promotion of unhealthy foods. 
especially in our schools, to our teenagers uh, and so on. I wanted to go back to the food system dashboard. I've, I've been playing around with it just for this interview, but also, I mean, it's a wonderful tool for anybody who's listening to just, even if you don't have a fixed purpose in mind, to just play around with. But I wonder what is sort of the, the use level of the dashboard? Is it really sort of meant for policymakers in the capital, top level NGO strategists, or is there a value for local farmers or small businesses to use it as well? I think at the moment it is mainly for that first group you mentioned, um, policy analysts, uh, uh, NGO strategists, and actually business uh, strategists too. I'll give you a couple of examples. If I'm a policymaker in you know Uganda and Kenya are neighbours, and um, if you look at uh, if you look at the deaths uh, between the ages of thirty and seventy, the percentage of deaths that is are related to coronary heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. It's much higher in, in um, Uganda than it is in Kenya. It's about twice. It's about 22% compared to 13% of all deaths from that. And so, you know, that we know that those kinds of deaths are strongly related to diet and they're strongly related to things like vegetables. So the dashboard will tell that policymaker in Uganda, your prices of vegetables are much higher in Uganda than in Kenya. Your supply of vegetables is much lower in Uganda than in Kenya. Um, your food, your vegetable loss is higher in Uganda than Kenya. And um, your productivity of vegetables is much lower in Uganda than in Kenya. So it, it kind of gives you some clues. Also, it will tell you that you don't have any food-based dietary guidelines in Uganda, but you do in Kenya. And those guidelines are saying in Kenya eat more vegetables. So you've got some things around vegetables. The demand side is weak in Uganda and the supply side is weak in Uganda. So it gives you clues as to as to what to do. But for individual farmers and smaller businesses, until we can get it uh, disaggregated down to the district level, the province level, the, the, the municipal level, it's not going to be as useful. But the plan is, is to make it more disaggregated. And I think while more data is obviously welcome, uh, certainly for better decision making, there sort of remains an argument that the problem in terms of food policy isn't always a lack of data, but rather one of opposing economic interests. Farmers will want high prices for his or her wheat or cassava or whatever. Consumers will prefer to pay as little as possible for safe, nutritious food. Does better data help resolve these contradictions? Um, so I'd, I'd be the first to say that uh, better data is not the saviour, uh, it's not a, not the panacea. It's certainly not sufficient to make good policy. It's, it's, some people would argue it's not even necessary. I think you can make good policy in the absence of data, but having the data there is incredibly helpful. Uh, and it, it just makes the whole thing much easier. It can also uh, highlight some of these trade-offs that you mentioned that are undoubtedly there. Uh, and it may give you some ideas as to how to how to square the circle with some of these apparent trade-offs. For example, you said uh, consumers want lower prices and farmers want higher prices. Well, actually, what farmers really want are profits. So if we can if we can lower the prices to consumers, um, that that does mean lower output prices for farmers. But if we can lower the input prices to farmers by the same amount or even more then their margins go up, their sales of nutritious food go up, and their profits go up, and the consumer also benefits because the price of 
say, vegetables or pulses or nuts is lower. And this is the kind of work we do at GAIN. We work with small and medium-sized enterprises that are producing these kinds of foods. And we say to them, if we, if we can help you develop your business plan, if we can get you some finance, you can scale your business. Because you're scaling your business, you can demand input prices. You can demand inputs at lower prices because you're more powerful in the market. And therefore, you can uh, lower your output prices to expand your, your markets. So there are ways that the data can help you square the circle. But some of the, some of the trade-offs are un, uh, unresolvable and you just have to make a decision about, you know, are you going to increase animal source foods because it's good for the nutrition of, of kids who are only eating porridge every day? Uh, if you do that, then you're going to increase greenhouse gases. So where do you, where do you as a policymaker and as a politician decide to come down on that? And that's, that's policymakers and politicians' jobs. But at least the, the, the assumptions they make will be very clear with the data. This is a good angle into policy. Something that's been talked about a lot at the FFA and in many other areas is this idea of that we need more holistic food system policies. It's often referred to as breaking through the silos. Traditionally, we've had an agriculture ministry, a health ministry, an environment ministry, and other sort of policy areas related to the food system in different buildings, essentially. However, we never had much success in actually doing this breaking through the silos and creating unified food system policies. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the, um, the way um, government departments are, are organized is very sort of 20th century and the problems with, they're not really fit for purpose for the problems we face in the 21st century, because most of the problems we face cut across sectors, so that, you know, they can't be neatly divided. Um, so short of, short of government departments being reorganized around problems rather than sectors, uh, if that's not going to happen, another way to, to get around that and to promote this kind of collaboration is through national plans of action, national food system. Plans. There's only one country, Norway, that has a, a food system action plan. Um, but I think I think the momentum is is very strong now for other countries to develop these kinds of plans that bring you know, six, seven, eight uh, ministries together. We know that the, um, the, the the negative things that food systems produce are just growing. Bad health. Bad health is the number one driver of. Uh, sorry, bad diets are the number one driver of bad health, much more than any other source of, 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 of any other driver of bad health, much worse than bad water, bad sanitation, uh, things like HIV, air pollution, any, much more important than any of those. So that's, that's just increasing. Greenhouse gas emissions from food systems are increasing. 30% of green, greenhouse gases, greenhouse gas emissions come from food systems. So the, the motivation to bring these departments together and these ministries together is growing. The the opportunity to to do so is COVID, I think, because COVID shows us how fluid everything is and how system how how interlinked everything is, and it generates a bit of urgency. And if we don't want uh, a food system collapse as the sting in the tail to COVID, the COVID health crisis, then we need to get our food systems together. And the sort of that's the motive and the opportunity and the means to do this is. One of the means is this UN Food Summit coming up next year, which which really is 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 breaking the barriers between the sectors. There are, there are five action tracks. 
the action tracks are going to be tightly interwoven. For the first time ever, we're seeing food systems not just in relation to diet quality, not just in relation to greenhouse gases, but you know, as a link to livelihoods, as a link to resilience, as a link to nature, and as a link to health. And I think there's, this is a very good forcing mechanism. We, we often say, and I often say, you can't treat these outcomes as, 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 as divisible. They are indivisible, just like human rights. You can't pick and choose whether you go for civil, political, economic, social, or cultural rights, and you can't really pick and choose these outcomes. And food systems are the unifying thing behind all of these things. So uh, it's a long answer to a difficult question, but I think the motivation to bring these, these ministries together is strong. The opportunity is here now, and the means are only going to get uh, better and better. I wanted to come back to the UN food system in a second, but first I wanted to, it was a complex answer, but it was a complex question. And one of the things that we've tried to discuss on, on this podcast and in the FFA for is also the question of, I think there's broad agreement that the food system is in need of transformation to healthy, more abundant, certainly much more sustainable and much more in line with our climate commitments. The question that we've been running up against is how do we finance that transition? Because individual actors in the food system. Some of them are vast multinationals with capital, but many, certainly as you will know from your work, are also very small farmers with with not that much education and and, and access to to finance to to do the things we need. Even in Western Europe, that appears to be a struggle. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, the, um, you know, there's a, if you look at the um, blended finance sector, the impact investing, which is where you you have lots of private capital, which is seeking returns commercially, but also seeking social returns. Uh, so they're willing to the the investors are willing to accept a slightly lower commercial rate in 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 return for the 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 the, the feeling of you know contributing something positive to society over and above the commercial side. That industry is about two hundred billion. Globally, so it's quite a, it's quite a lot of money. Um, about eighteen billion only of that goes to Africa, and in Africa, only five billion of that eighteen billion goes to agriculture and food, and uh, a very small proportion of that of that five billion goes to small businesses, small farmers, especially in the nutritious food sector. And by nutritious food, I mean fruits, vegetables, pulses, nuts eggs, dairy, fish, and some, some meats, um, poultry, for example. So very little of that goes to them. Now, there's two reasons for that. One is um, there are no, um, many, many of the, the investors don't know which of the smallholder farmers and the small and medium enterprises are investable. They don't know uh, which ones have good business plans, uh, which ones have good um, protocols, good uh, good financial protocols, um, they, they just don't know. And it's too, it's too expensive for them to find out. And the other reason is that there aren't enough, there aren't enough invest, there aren't enough SMEs and small farmers, smallholders who are investor ready. So, so it, it, it's sort of a, on the supply side and the demand side, there are gaps. And we, we at GAIN have developed uh, a prototype a fund. It's called the Nutritious Food Financing Facility, N3F. It's a small fund. It's $60 million. It's quite small. 
but it's it's going to provide uh, loans um, to small and medium businesses, including farmers, that and it's in four countries in Africa that can show they have a good plan and they're in, they're investable, and then we're going to direct funds to them. They have to be producing nutritious food. There has to be a commitment to having an impact on nutrition, positive impact. Uh, but we hope that that. You know, we because the the whole sector has sort of shied away from that that model. We tried to get some of the bigger investors to open up a window like that, and they said, "No, nah, it's not going to work." But we think it can work. We've done the maths, we've done the research, we've done the background work. We think it can work, and we're working with a, an investment a fund manager called Incofin, which is a, in a Belgian fund manager, and together we've put together this fund. So if that works, you know, that could be a really good way of rethinking the way we fund small and medium enterprises in the food sector that are trying to do good things for food and good things for diets and good things for climate. So it's a possibility. But more generally, you know, there's you can do things within the current food system settings. Food system settings means what's the current policy, what's the current financial uh, arrangements, what's the current innovation uh, ecosystem. I'm sorry to use that word for your viewers, but uh, but what we really want to do in the summit is actually change those settings, change change the policies, change the incentives, change the the ease of doing good things for nutrition, health, climate, nature. This is brings us neatly back to the UN Food System Summit. It's going to take place next year. I think we'll all find out how much of it will be physical and how much of it will be digital. What are your expectations of the summit in terms of concrete action? Because in the past, we've seen a large number of sort of international commitments that look very good on camera and sound good on paper, but then the follow-through tends to not be, I think we can agree, not be as good as it should have been. Yeah, I completely agree, and I've I've had my fair share of disappointments from big summits. So I I enter this one with uh, some some um, with my eyes wide open. Let me let me say, um, I I think this one will be different. I think it'll be, and I'm you know I'm involved in leading one of the action tracks, one of the five action tracks around nutritious food. So I I have a, a stake in in the answer I'm about to give you, but I think this one is slightly different because it. Um, it's really focusing on um, it's really focusing on game changing action. So it's not we're not content with small changes at the margin. We're really trying to think of big changes, big changes in policy. You know, there is there's a there's a massive amount of uh, subsidies directed at the wrong kinds of foods. For example, public public subsidies. All of these subsidies were developed in the seventies and eighties, and they were all directed at cereals. And that was the problem back in the 70s and the 80s, you know, that we had 1.5 billion people who were hungry. And we still got a lot of people who are hungry, uh, but we've got a much bigger number of people who can't get the right things to eat. So another example is agricultural research and development that's funded by uh, the government and the international system. 90% of it is, is, again, targeted to cereals and root crops, and only 10% of it is targeted to the, the very foods that are very nutritious, and their prices are going up. So we're, we're, trying, to think of, we're trying to think of very big, um, big changes. But in addition, we're, um, we're determined to put in place a very strong accountability mechanism. So we're trying to, we're trying to put in place these big changes, we're trying to 
say, commitments have to be linked to these changes. So, you know, many companies and governments will make random commitments, you know, things they were going to do anyway, but they'll maybe they'll increase it by 5% or something. And, you know, those those are useful and those are helpful. But we want we want commitments that are going to be linked to a particular action. Here's an action that we think will really make a big difference. Governments, for this action to happen, government, you have to commit to doing this. Businesses, you have to commit to doing this. Researchers, you commit. Civil society, you commit. Those four interlocking commitments, we can actually get that thing done. But then there'll be a tracking mechanism. There'll be a countdown, some kind of countdown to 2030 mechanism that's very clear that, that fames and shames. Governments, businesses, UN, you, know, you said you were going to do this. You did it. Fantastic. Do some more. You said you were going to do this. You didn't do it. How come? What can we do to help? I think that brings us uh, neatly towards the, the closing of this podcast. And what we always ask of the people who come on is at the end is what their one recommendation would be for a better, more sustainable food system. So I will put the same question to you. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a great question because it's a difficult question to answer and it cuts right to the core of the issue. I'm, I don't think the, uh, the idea of food systems and poor diets, I just don't think it's really um, punctured public consciousness enough. And ultimately, that's what politicians pay attention to. If everyone's talking about it, if everyone's writing letters to their representative, if everyone's um, going on the radio and the, and the TV and, and making a noise about this issue, politicians pay attention to it. So I'd, I'd like to see, and I, I don't quite know how to make it happen, but I'd like to see some kind of analogue to Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, that kind of civil society movement that is quite grassroots, quite internationally connected, and really and really uh, is hard to ignore. Because if you're a politician in power, there's a lot of clamour from lots of different special interests that want your attention. Uh, everyone's got their own issue. But this issue is so fundamental, uh, and it's such a silent crisis, and it's undermining everything else we're trying to do. It's wrecking... It's wrecking health systems, it's wrecking climate systems, it's wrecking nature, it's wrecking food safety. We think it's connected to coronavirus emanating from a, a wet food market in China because of poor food safety and food preparation uh, processes. So it's undermining pretty much everything. And, and everyone has a connection with food. You know, everyone has an intimate connection with food. So it's a silent crisis and we need to somehow make it um, loud, uh, strong and compelling. I think that should certainly be part of it, this type of civil action. For our listeners, they can go to foodsystemsdashboard.org to play with it ourselves. Lawrence Haddad of the Gain Alliance, thank you so very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Robert. Fantastic questions. Thank you. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter, at ForumFag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day. Music.